Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be here. I get to teach to the college students a lot, but it's a rare privilege to stand before the church and to preach God's word. So, um, did you dismiss kids already? Okay, yeah, kids, you're dismissed. Lucky for you, because we're sitting through two and a half chapters today. Um, For everybody else, you're stuck with me. Exodus 25, so go ahead and flip there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in the seat back in front of you, and I encourage you to grab that. As I said, we've got a huge chunk of the Bible today, courtesy of Chuck. Also, uh, remarkably convenient, if you ask me. <laughs> Two and a half chapters, I, oh yeah, I gotta go out of town, you know? Okay. Um, but for that reason, we are not gonna read every single line, um, but I want you to have a Bible in front of you. One, don't take my word for it, Uh, See it for yourself in the text. Uh, But two, that way you can reference some of the stuff that we're not actually going to read and that won't be on the screen. All right, so if you weren't with us last week, uh, what's going on? Well, we left off at Mount Sinai. So the Israelites, they've exited out of Egypt. They've been led by God to this mountain. And Moses, who's the leader of Israel, He takes the elders and he ascends this mountain where God is. All the people stay at the base, the elders go up, and then Moses alone goes into the presence of God. And he stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. And our text deals with the first of the instructions that God is gonna give to Moses while he's in God's presence. Now, as I said, our text is long. Um, And texts like this, if we're not careful, can feel tedious. Uh, It's the kind of text that when you come to it in your Bible, you you sort of feel like skimming it. Um, A genealogy, uh, results of a census, instructions for building the tabernacle, which is our text today. Even in our staff meeting this week, I had us read the whole two and a half chapters before we studied it, and uh, the first question someone asked, you know who you are. Uh, when we finished reading this was, so what would I be missing if I just skimmed this? And I think that that's a totally normal question. I feel that way when I come to texts like this. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you feel that way. After all, what does the shape of a tent have to do with me? But God does not waste his breath. Every word is there for our good. And so if you're asking that question, as I was asking that question coming to this text, then I hope you're gonna consider this differently and see this as a really beautiful text that tells us something we so desperately need to hear. So, to begin our time, let's start by reading the first paragraph, uh, chapter 25, verses one through nine. Exodus 25, one through nine. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. 
and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of their tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So in this paragraph, God commands Moses to build the tabernacle. Now what is the tabernacle? Well, verse eight says it best, it's a sanctuary for God. It's the place where God's presence would uniquely dwell among the people. And it's literally what tabernacle means, is dwelling. Now this would have been amazing for the Israelites. Because last chapter, they couldn't even go up the mountain. They were told if you touch the mountain, you're dead. That is how holy God is. Now God's saying, I'm coming to you. The tabernacle was the traveling tent where God would instruct his people. He would meet with them. It would lead them through the wilderness. It would lead them into the promised land. It would be at the front of their army as they conquered over the Canaanites. And ultimately, it would settle in the temple. It would be um, taken down and replaced by the temple that was built under King Solomon. So here's a visual. Um, of the tabernacle. Uh, this is what the whole chapter is gonna describe. So as you can see, there's this outer court. That's that fence off area. The Israelites could come into this place and they could offer sacrifice here. And then in the middle of the court, that tent structure, that is the actual tabernacle. And it was called the holy place. Only the priests could enter into the holy place. And then that curtain, you can't really see it, but um, there's a curtain inside the tent that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And that is where God's very presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, and only the high priest could go in there. Um, and you'd know why if you've seen Indiana Jones. <laughs> so, it's scary. Um, now that would have been a visible sign of God's presence among the people. So, how do we go about studying these chapters? Two and a half chapters just talking about how to build this structure. How do we go about studying them? As I said, it's a lot. I was half tempted to go verse by verse, but we do not have time for that. Um, so instead, I've tried to provide a structure based on the emphasis of the passage. So, what are these chapters about? Simply put, God patterned the tabernacle to prepare his people for his presence. God patterned the tabernacle to prepare his people for his presence. And I want to spend the rest of the sermon breaking down this idea as we see it in the text. I've arranged this sermon into three P's then. Um, I never wanted to be the Baptist three points guy, but I am today. So... Um, so we're gonna look at this text based on the three points, um, this main idea. So God patterned the tabernacle to prepare the people for his presence, three Ps. Let's start looking at how God patterned the tabernacle. So why patterned? Well, it's repeated in our text. After God gives these instructions, he keeps saying, um, do it, make it after the pattern of the tabernacle. You see that in verse 25, nine. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Again, verse 25, 40. 
He's talking about the furniture, all the things that are going to fill up the tabernacle. He says, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. In 26.30, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it you were shown on the mountain. In 27.8, as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. The tabernacle is patterned. So let's ask a basic question. What is a pattern for? Pattern points to something. If you understand the pattern, then you usually understand the underlying order to a thing. It's meaning. But a pattern is also sometimes a template. It's a blueprint for something. And that seems to be the meaning here. But either way, Patterns are instructive. They're instructive. And I start here because God is not tedious with any of these details. They're not meaningless. He's very specific for a reason. God doesn't waste his breath. He wants the Israelites to build the tabernacle this way because it represents something that they need to know. So let's look at this in the text. Verse 25.9, the first place we see it, it says, you will build the tabernacle exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. So, tabernacle's patterned. After what? After what? If you were here last week, Chuck talked about Mount Sinai, um, and the tabernacle is actually arranged the same way as Sinai. So, uh, the people stay at the base of the mountain. Moses and the elders go up part way, but only Moses goes fully into God's presence. Tabernacles the same way. The people are allowed in the outer court. The priests may enter the holy place. They take care of it, but only God, or not God, only Moses, God is in the holy place, but only Moses goes into the holy of holies. So there's definitely correlation. But is the tabernacle based on Sinai Or is Sinai and the tabernacle actually pointing to something else? It seems to me Sinai and the tabernacle are earthly pictures of a heavenly reality. Meaning, the earthly dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, is meant to represent God's heavenly dwelling place. That's why God is so specific about how he wants this to be made. It reflects something that's actually in heaven. So, uh, here's a better reason than I think so. Uh, Hebrews chapter eight, verse five, speaks of this. It'll be on the screen. But when we're trying to interpret scripture, we always wanna allow scripture to interpret itself. And a lot of times, the New Testament authors will give us insights on the Old Testament that we can trust. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Talking about the high priests, the tabernacles, and all the things in the tabernacle, he says, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the tabernacle is a shadow. It's a copy the splendor of the royal colors as you read this chapter, the beautiful gemstones, the gold, the silver instruments, they're nothing compared to the heavenly dwelling place where God sits, enthroned above the cherubim. 
Imagine how amazing that place must be. It's pretty cool. Now we have the luxury of Hebrews to tell us this, but what about the Jews? Would they have understood this? I think they would have totally understood this because there are actually smaller patterns all throughout this, this two and a half chapters. Everything is patterned to explain this fact. Um, so for example, the first chapter deals with the furniture that goes in the tabernacle. And one of these items is the golden lampstand. So we're gonna read this text together. Look at verse 31 through 40 in chapter 25. 31 through 40. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, one on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, with their calyxes and their flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be made of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. It's a mouthful, but it's good. The golden lampstand would have been one of the furnishings in the tabernacle alongside the Ark of the Covenant and the table for the bread of the presence. It would have been the only light in the tabernacle. So if you've ever seen a menorah, it's, it's like that, seven prongs holding candles. Yet did you notice the imagery of a plant in the description of the menorah? Modern menorahs often lose this imagery. We, we totally don't think about it. But the lamp is arranged like a flowering tree. Each of the prongs is a stem. At the end of the stem, this budding flower where the lamps are. And what is this meant to represent? Well, this is the place that God dwells. This is the place where God's people go in to meet with him. It's a picture of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. This garden motif is in the tabernacle. It's also expanded in the actual temple when it's built. But just imagine this. Close your eyes if you're that kind of person. You need to visualize this. But imagine being a priest. You walk into the holy place where God's presence dwells. And what do you see? A dark room, one lamp illuminates this tent and it is a flowering golden tree. And from its light, all the gold and the silver and the splendor of the tabernacle are illuminated. The pattern here is meant to remind the people of God's original sanctuary, drawing them back to the place where God and man walked together in the splendor of Eden. 
It would have been a clear reminder, God is near. God is with us. And God uses this pattern to communicate his constant presence with the people. And this isn't the only pattern. Uh, more abound in this text. In 25, 10 through 22, you have the Ark of the Covenant. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit, but the cherubim and the mercy seat symbolizing God's heavenly throne surrounded by the heavenly host is patterned after his actual heavenly throne where he is enthroned above the heavenly host in the cherubim. Or the bread of the presence, uh, for chapter 25, 23 through 30, it symbolizes these 12 tribes of Israel and God's relationship with them and his provision for them. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit as well. For the sake of the time, we can't, or time, we can't go through all of the patterns, but I'd encourage you, uh, read this chapter with somebody this week and just look at these details that we're tempted to gloss over and there's so many beautiful things in here that God is trying to communicate. Now, why should these patterns matter to us? It's not just details. And I think this passage reminds us that God is serious about how we worship him. God is serious about how we worship him. When he instructs us to do something, he's got a good reason for it. So as Christians, uh, we have no tabernacle, but we do have uh, ordinances, things that God has told us explicitly, I want you to do this, it, and they're patterned after something else. What is baptism patterned after? Death and new life. When somebody goes under the water, they're dying to their self. They're being raised in new life in Christ. It's patterned after the actual death and resurrection. Or the Lord's Supper, which we're gonna do in a bit here, it's meant to symbolize the unity of God and his people. It's patterned after the Last Supper, which is patterned after the Passover, all to communicate God's promises, his unity, as we do this together, we're proclaiming to one another, I'm trusting God, I'm hearing you, I'm seeing you all eat the bread and drink the wine and say, I'm part of this promise too, we're doing that together. And these patterns of worship, they're meaningful. God gave them to us because they matter. And so I'd encourage you even today, um, as you engage in the Lord's Supper together. Really think about what you're saying, what you're doing. Look at the other people around you and see it maybe in a new way, how beautiful it really is. All right, going back to the text, what are these patterns about? They were meant to prepare Israel for God's presence. So let's talk about that second point, preparation. The patterns are meant to prepare, to prepare Israel for God's presence. So the whole point of these instructions is preparation. And I think this goes two ways in the text. One, it was practical. It was preparation for God to have a visible dwelling place among the people. That's what all the chapter is about. But notice, it's also a preparation of the people's own heart to receive God. It's a preparation of the people's own heart to receive God. When you look at that first paragraph, it might not be striking that God's coming to dwell among the people, but just a few chapters ago, like I said, they couldn't even touch the mountain or they would die. 
uh, verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 21, God literally tells Moses, go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. They were instructed they couldn't even really look at God's presence, lest they die. And how is God's glory described in the chapter right before this, uh, 2417? says, the glory of the Lord appeared in the sight of the people like a devouring fire. Yeah, now God is saying, I'm coming to you. So what changed? What needed to happen to allow God to dwell with the people? The people need to be prepared to receive God. And I think that's why God begins the instructions with an invitation for the people to contribute to the building of the tabernacle. Why would God do that? Does he need investors for his building project? You think God didn't have enough resources to build a tent for himself? He doesn't need their money. He doesn't even care about their possessions. They're his anyways. The offering is a chance for men to participate in what God is doing. It's an invitation to prepare their hearts to receive the Lord. It's a chance to say, having you, God, is better than having anything that you give me. Notice God doesn't want the contribution from everyone. Uh, Verse two, in chapter 25. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. Because it's not about the resources. It's about the heart. When we give, we reveal what we treasure most. So if you look at your budget, what does your spending say that you love most? Do you love God or do you love something else? When the people give cheerfully to God, they're saying, God, you are better than my money. You are better than my possessions, my vacation, my house, and that is a posture ready to receive God because there's nothing in between him and them. Those with a giving heart also get to join in with God in the work that he's doing. They actually get the greater blessing in giving. Because yeah, you lose some precious things. It's a sacrifice, but the stuff is passing away anyways. You can't keep it anyways, but you have an opportunity to make a temporary material thing count for something eternal. In Israel's case, they get to say, They were invited to build the dwelling place of God with man. And I think this verse alone has a lot to tell us about our own posture in giving. Ask yourself, is my heart prepared to give sacrificially to God? Really what you're asking, is my heart prepared to receive God? Or, Is it a begrudging expectation? Do I love God or do I love stuff? Shameless plug, this is especially worth thinking about as we get closer to the building project. Uh, No, none of the elders put me up to this. This is 
the application that makes the most sense from the text in my mind. We want to have a better facility to reach the community with the gospel. We want the buildings to not be a hindrance, but a help to the ministry that we're doing. And all of us have a chance to give to something that is lasting. Not to a building, but to the ministry that God will do in that building. To what that building can facilitate. But make no mistake, giving is not so much about a building as it is about your heart towards God. A heart that gives freely is indicative of a heart that fully loves God and is prepared to receive. Something worth considering for all of us. So God wanted to prepare the hearts of his people. And that's what is going on all throughout these instructions. But the tabernacle was also given to prepare them for God's presence. And that brings us to the third and most important point. God prepared the people for his presence. More than anything else, the tabernacle is about God with his people. Pick any section in the chapter and you can see that. It's pointed to God's presence. So uh, the structure of the temple itself, the later half of the chapter is it describes the building of the outer courts and the inner courts and the structure. And even that is showing the recreated sanctuary of in heaven on earth. It's about God's presence with his people. Uh, think about the materials involved in the construction. Um, on the outside, if you read those chapters, you have bronze, goat's hair, more common materials. But as you get closer into the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies, you have gold, silver, linens with wonderful colors on them. It's royalty, it's beautiful, it's pointing to God's presence in the center of it with his people. Uh, the gold lampstand, it points to God's dwelling with man in Eden. It's a recreation of that sanctuary where God walked with man. And even the table of the bread of the presence, besides being called the bread of the presence, it points to God's constant presence among his people in his provision. So uh, in the ancient world, when you would offer a sacrifice to your gods, you'd be feeding them, essentially. They kind of need you. Well, in, on this table, you would have 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priests would make this bread and then they would eat it. And once it was eaten, they'd replace it. So God actually feeds his people with their offerings. Not the other way around. The bread of the presence would have been a constant symbol that God is going to provide for us. So over and over again we see an emphasis on God dwelling with his people and perhaps the place this is clearest is in the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. So let's read that now. Uh, 25, 10 through 22. Chapter 25, 10 through 22 says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. 
You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub with, on one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat you make, or shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant was a box, um, contained the law, Aaron's budding staff, the manna bread, um, and it was carried around by the Israelites, and it was the heart of God's presence. On the top of the Ark was this thing called the mercy seat, and it's sort of like an ornate lid or cover and that's what 17 through 22 describe. And if you can picture this, the mercy seat would have had two angels facing each other. My dad loves the movie Conan. It's two snakes facing each other. No? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, anyways, two angels facing each other. And these are not the fat, chubby babies you see in people's gardens. These are angels described as divine warriors who guard the entrance to God's presence, like the cherubim placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. These cherubim have their wings extended upward, their faces staring at God's presence. They're bowing before him. They're pointing to his throne, upholding him, looking at his glory. And the mercy seat where God dwelt was to be the very place where he would speak with his people meet with them in a unique way, make atonement for them. So as the Israelites looked at the tabernacle, it would have been a constant reminder through the 40 years they were gonna wander in the wilderness, through the conquest of Canaan, through every trial, every battle to come, God is here, he is for us, and he is with us. Receiving these instructions would have been a monumental moment for the people because it was proof that God wanted to be with them. And isn't that what we all want? We want to know that God wants to be with us. I was thinking about it this week, and if you're a Christian, I think one desire that's hardwired hard into you is that you want to be near God. You were made that way as a human and you were especially remade that way by the Spirit when you became a Christian. And I think that's why uh, we're drawn to mature Christians, people like our pastors, 
Uh, we perceive they know God in a way that we don't. They have something we want, and so uh, we wanna learn from them. We wanna be around them. Uh, teach me how to know God like you. It's almost like, you know, spiritual cooties, if I could just catch it, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and why do you think so many people love the Psalms? Why do they love the gospel stories? Like when you go to your Bible and you're just kind of tired and you just want to hear from God. How many of you go to Leviticus? I know some of you do. I'm thinking <laughs> maybe Katina over here, but. <laughs> um, most of us go to these places where we feel like we can relate to God. We feel like he understands us. Even in my own testimony, I see this. As a college student, I so desperately wanted God's presence. He felt like a world in the clouds away to me growing up. And I began to actually read the Bible, and I realized that God is near, that Jesus loves me, that he was close 2,000 years ago, and he's just as close today. And I saw other college students around me who seemed to know God in a personal way that I didn't, and I needed that. Now what makes this so hard in the Christian life is the flip side. Even though we know we have God, even though we want to be near to him, one of the greatest lies we will be tempted to believe is that God doesn't want us. It's the doubt you feel when you sin uh, the voice that says, how could God ever take me back after I messed up again, after I sinned against him again? Whether from Satan, sin, uh, bad days in a broken world, we all experience this. It's the lies that begin to tell us, God doesn't actually love you. He's mad at you. He's an angry God. That's why your life is hard. That's why you're suffering. But it is not true. It's just not true, church. Look at the extent God has gone to save us, to show us his presence. Look what he's done for us. God does love us. God does want to be with us, and he's proved it. And that is what's so great about this passage of instructions about the tabernacle is that it illustrates something we so desperately need to hear. Not just that we want to be with God, but that God wants to be with us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's actually even the point of the mercy seat that we just talked about. It was significant not only for being a place of God's presence among the Israelites, but it was also the place where forgiveness was made for broken people so they could be with God. On the Day of Atonement, described in Leviticus 17, the priest would offer sacrifice to God. The high priest would take some of the blood from the sacrifice, he'd walk into the Holy of Holies, and he'd sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. The blood for the sacrifice was payment, for the sins of the people. It would cover them, it'd make atonement for them so they could be in the presence of God. This is how a devouring fire 
comes to dwell among sinful people without destroying them. This is what the tabernacle is about. God patterned the tabernacle to prepare his people for his presence. Maybe the question you have, what does that mean for us as Christians? We don't make sacrifices. We don't have a temple or a tabernacle. That's good for them, but how do I know God still wants to be with me today? Well, just like God gave the instructions to prepare the Israelites for his presence, God has given us this text to prepare us for his presence in an even greater way. Because everything about the tabernacle is actually a huge arrow pointing to Jesus, who is the greater, better tabernacle. Uh, Let me show you this, John 1, the very beginning of his gospel, he begins with these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John is talking about Jesus, and then he says one of the most incredible things in all of scripture, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and that word dwelt means tabernacled. Do you see how amazing that is? The incarnation. The tabernacle is not just an illustration of God's presence, but it's a pattern pointing to the better tabernacle in Jesus. The incarnation, the infinite God becomes a man so that we would know him. What could be a clear picture of God's presence than for him to come to us as a man as we are men? To condescend not just from a mountain but from heaven. Not just to an ark but to a human body. He did not just dwell among the camp, but he had his own human family. He was one of us. You want to know if God loves you, church? You want to be sure that he wants to dwell among you? Look at how much better we have it in Jesus. Consider the Israelites, even though they had the tabernacle, they couldn't actually go in to see God. He was too holy. If they touched the ark, they would die. They couldn't interact with God except for through the high priest. Uh, Actually, later in 2 Samuel, there's this guy, Uzzah, and he does what I think any reasonable person would do. They're carrying the ark, and the ark begins to fall, and so he says, oh, I'm gonna catch that before it hits the ground. He's struck dead. His sin, assuming his hands were cleaner than the dirt. But this is not the case for us. Jesus came as a man so we could touch him. So we could see him. So we could speak to him face to face. What could be better for God to communicate his presence with us than to become one of us? And you can be sure of that because he was willing not only to become like you, but to live for you and to die for you.
Now the patterns of the tabernacle are even more explicit than this because another place that the New Testament connects the dots here is in the word mercy seat. Let's look at Romans 3, 23 through 25. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation, which is to make satisfaction, it's also the same word used for mercy seat. Paul's saying God put Jesus forward as a mercy seat by his blood for us to make atonement for our sin. So this is why we don't make sacrifices. This is why Jesus is our sacrifice. And all of the tabernacle, all of these instructions that are pointing forward to the true and better tabernacle with the true and better mercy seat where God's presence would be fully known in Jesus Christ. So let us never again look at the tabernacle as instructions like a list of dry, boring details. This is what you miss if you skim it. This is God's very plan for us to know him. Never again wonder, does God love me? Is God near to me? God's presence is not a feeling. It is a reality that transcends your feelings and it was bought for you by the death of Jesus Christ, our true and better tabernacle. So in closing, let me speak to the Christian and the non-Christian in the room briefly, then we'll pray. To the non-Christian in the room, the tabernacle shows that God desires to be with you if you will have him. That verse in Romans we just read says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God makes atonement for our sin in Jesus. He is the mercy seat. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was spilt and it covered us, just like the mercy seat, and it was shed for all who repent of their sins and trust in him. Jesus' blood can cover you and when it does, you're able to approach God. When you do that, you're forever able to dwell in God's presence. And just like I said earlier, we all want to be with God. It's hardwired in us. Whatever hole in your life you're trying to fill with possessions, pleasures, people, whatever, it cannot be filled except for the presence of God. And that's offered to you today and we would love to talk to you about that before you leave. To the Christian, some of you have a hard time believing God is near you right now. It doesn't feel that way for one reason or another. Uh, maybe suffering in your life. Maybe it's just a dry season that happens. Some of you doubt God's presence in your life. Maybe you feel like God is angry with you. Or you think he's abandoned you because you're struggling with sin. Over time, what was a close and good relationship, you start to kind of drift into thinking, maybe God really doesn't love me. Or, 
Maybe you're just prone to doubt, like the Apostle Thomas. It's just your personality. And some of you have forgotten that you have the presence of God. A patient, loving Father who is always available to you. And over time, you've come to functionally live like God is not near to you. You don't really pray for anything. You don't really live in dependence on God. Wherever you're at today, God's presence is a current reality in your life. God loves you. He condescended from heaven for you. And his permanent presence was bought in blood for you at the mercy seat of the cross. Just as the tabernacle is a picture of God's desire to be with us, so is the incarnation of Jesus a greater picture of God's desire to be with us and the length he will go to make his presence known in our life. So I invite you this week, make use of your ever-present heavenly father. Cast any doubt out of your mind that says God thinks badly of you, he doesn't want to be with you, because if you are in Christ, that is not true. It's simply not true. God loves you and he's provided it, in, he's proved it in coming to you on your own terms as a man. So now, let's close by turning to the Lord in prayer and rejoice in the ever-present God who will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Father, you have done so much to prove to us that you love us. You have chased us down. You've been faithful time and time again. Even just the simple blessing of life and breath, which is really a miraculous blessing. But then for all of us in the room, even God, you offer salvation. So many of us have received that salvation not based on anything we've done, but just based on you condescending to us, living for us, dying for us. You tabernacled among us that we would know you. And so today, God, we give you all the glory and praise. We ask that we would rely dependently on your presence. And we pray all this to your glory. Amen.